Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. This conversation was recorded during the Business Fights Poverty Gender Summit 2023. The recording was a joint online community event and a Twitter space. I hope you enjoy it. Today, we're going to be looking and thinking about deeply, how do we really properly empower women? Uh, The UN stats say that it's going to take us another 300 years at the current rate in order to get some sort of gender equality. Well, we started on this path of trying to create some sort of gender equality centuries ago. What are we doing wrong? Today, we are going to look at that deeply and positively, but we're going to get practical as well. So we've got a fantastic lineup for this uh, Twitter space, gender summit, jam all round the wicket. Uh, we've got Jean-Claude, who's joining us from Rwanda, uh, from Speak Farms. We've got Danielle, who's part of Token Man, uh, based in the UK. Uh, we've got Tash, who's joining us from Canada. And we've got Ajita, who's joining us from India. So we are literally spanning continents here during this conversation. And the format for the conversation that we're going to do, we're going to look at some scene setting. So what have we learned in the time of trying to create some sort of gender equality? What has been working? What hasn't? Where are the challenges? Where are the opportunities? And then we're going to have a look at actually how do we potentially get there? How do we close that gap? How do we shorten that 300-year planned sort of epic trying to reach gender equality. What are we doing wrong? We are really keen to hear from the audience. So if you are on the lines anywhere, please do get your questions in. We really do want to hear from you. I'm Katie. I'm the Director of Thought Leadership at Business Fights Poverty, and we are delighted to welcome you here today. So thank you very much for joining us. First person I'm going to turn to in this conversation is to Tash. Tash, um, you were the CEO of uh, Youth Employment Services based in uh, Uh, South Africa. You were helping young people into work. I know that you've continued on that theme when you're now based in Canada, but I was wondering if I could turn to you first, just to see and set on that journey that you've been on. So tell us a bit about yourself, but what have you learned on that journey about helping young women into business? Tash. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. So I became the CEO of the Youth Employment Service in, in South Africa. Uh, in 2016. And that began a very steep learning curve. The purpose of the NGO was to work between labor, business and government to create a national program to drive youth employment. And that began a, a steep learning curve on understanding in the employment space, in the participation of women in the economy, just how stark um, and difficult it was for women to participate. Uh, you know, this is this is not just, uh, you know, I'm in Canada at an, another NGO called MyTax, uh, which accelerates innovation, um, connecting talent into the workplace. But the issues that faced women in South Africa, the barriers to them participating in the economy, you know, we see evidence of that around the world. Um, the, you, you know, if we just look at venture funding, uh, from the pool of venture funding, which is increasing uh, globally, the statistic from uh, 2020 was that 2.4% of global venture funding goes to women, which is an, uh, a scary number. Uh, and what's worse is this trend is, is only um, getting worse. Uh, a, a person from a, a female entrepreneurial network that tries to get access to funding for women businesses in Canada called 51 cited a much more recent figure, which tells us in North America, even though the pool of venture funding has grown under 2%, under 2% goes to women. So, you know, what I'm describing in the South African context where women are at the back of the queue 
um, particularly young black women, uh, at the back of the queue in terms of employment opportunities. There is a lovely trend in South Africa that 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 is uh, uh, sort of bucking the global trend in that. Ten percent of venture funding seems to go to um, to women, which is which is a, a lovely place to see South Africa bucking the trend. But by and large, uh, women in South Africa um, are really at the back of the queue in terms of economic participation. Highest uh, levels of unemployment are seen with young black women, and there, you know, what we what we started to understand was we needed to create um, programs that improve that access by understanding those barriers a lot more closely. If you look at statistics, again, I'm going to say globally, um, the, the, the concept of a nuclear family, a, a mom and a dad together raising um, a family, that, that is no longer the reality. Even in a country like Sweden, developed advanced economy like Sweden, 25% of households are, are single parent-led households. In the U.S., a quarter of children under 18 are growing up in um, single-headed uh, 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 parent uh, families, mostly women, uh, heading those families. So, that, so the South African trend. I, I just I want to, you know, we've got a global audience. This this is a global issue, but in South Africa, you have special problems like spatial inequality that uh, that we got with apartheid, where if you're going to leave your family and go out and look for a job. You need to be able to pay for a sitter. A sitter will not look after your children if you don't have disposable diapers. You know, it comes down to practicalities like uh, can you afford disposable diapers to be able to leave your children while you go out and look for a job? Security issues. Uh, you know, the jobs are far from where women live. And so they face security issues coming back. And so at the Youth Employment Service, we had to build uh, special. Uh, uh, plans into the program to be able to make this more accessible for women trying to create jobs closer to where they live. The organization I'm at, MyTax, is very supportive of women uh, working from home. That has made a massive difference to um, those women working in advanced economies where you're able to connect virtually into your work. Unfortunately, in indigenous communities in Canada and in communities in South Africa, that option um, of having strong internet access and being able to access the types of jobs that you can do online doesn't exist for many. Um, and so these spatial inequalities play a very big role in keeping women out of work, in addition to the others that we know where women are not seen as competent as men. Uh, however, if we can get women those first opportunities, what we saw at the Youth Employment Service is by breaking women into the workplace, creating programs that got them that first job, uh, a, a good reference letter from a first employer doubled the likelihood of a woman being able to access a job. So, the, you know, the, the, I've, I've named some of the barriers that we saw. Um, but there are ways of, of getting around that by building specialized programs that give women that first access into the networks of employers and capital and experience in the business world. And when we do that, we can see women flourish. Uh, Uganda, 38% of entrepreneurs are women. Um, so there are countries in Africa, in developing economies, where we've seen um, programs put into place that are encouraging women to get into business and to get into the network of, uh, of funders. Tash, thank you so much. That was a brilliant scene set for us, I think, just really kind of properly grounding us in the problems that we're seeing. Uh, Jean-Claude, I wanted to bring you in next. You are really working to help um, agriculture, sort of reimagine what agriculture looks like across Africa. I was wondering whether you could share with us a bit about the work that you've been doing, but you're, through that kind of transformation of African agriculture, what does gender equality mean to the work you've been doing? What do you see as, as the sort of problems and opportunities? Jean-Claude. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. My name is Jean-Claude Niyomugawo and I'm based in Rwanda. I'm the co-founder and the CEO of Spec Farms. It's a startup that connects farmers to the market as well as training in the extension services. So we have been uh, doing 
transforming agriculture through showing what is going on in agricultural chain, as well as trying to show people uh, how they can make money out of agriculture in a way that is uh, sustainable through uh, using uh, social media and the website and uh, leveraging the power of technologies to connect uh, those people in agricultural chain. So regarding the gender equality in our works, uh, I believe that gender equality is essential in leveraging the power of technologies to connect farmers to the market, training and the financial advisory services. What does it mean? It means that ensuring that women and the men have equal access to any benefit from the opportunity created by the technologies. Uh, the following are some of the challenges and opportunities associated with promoting gender equality in this context. Uh, starting from the challenges, uh, we have seen that there's a challenge gender biased and stereotype, where the traditional gender roles and bias often prevent women from accessing to technologies and participating in tech-based activities. For example, in my country and all of Africa, most of the people think that agriculture is for the boys and the men. But when it comes to the women, they think that they can't uh, get uh, technologies, they can't get the knowledge related to the technologies, and they can't benefit from the uh, technologies. So the, the second one is about the lack of access to the technologies. For example, the women in the rural areas, because it is where most of the farmers live, uh, in developing countries often have limited access to the technologies. This remits their abilities to take the advantages of the opportunities it offers, where many of the people in the rural areas can't access to computers, they can't access to a smartphone, where they can use those uh, tools to benefit from them in their, in their everyday activities. The, the third one is about limited education and skills. For example, women in particular have a limited education and skills in technologies and technology-related fields, and this makes them uh, challenging to leverage the power that the technologies offers. Yeah, where you can see that most of the people who have the knowledge and the skills are men, and when it comes to the women, most of them are lagging behind. Uh, but uh, if there's the challenge, there's also an opportunity. And the, by talking about the opportunities, I can say that uh, when uh, women uh, use the technologies, they can get increased access to the market where the technologies can enable uh, them, especially the farmers, to get access to the large market, find new buyers uh, through networking, as well as selling their product at a better price. The second one is about access to finance. Technologies can be used to provide farmers, especially women, with financial advisory services, which can enable them to get access to the loans and other financial products. The third one is about increased access to the information. I believe that technologies can help the women, especially the farmers, with the trainings and information on the best practice and new development in agriculture which is about doing sustainable agriculture, which is about uh, management, uh, business skills in agriculture, where they can get the money out of the activities. The fourth one is about uh, increased social inclusion. I believe that technologies can be used to promote gender equalities and the social inclusion, breaking down the traditional gender roles and the bias and providing women with equal access to the opportunities. So in order to sum up, uh, I think that gender equality is crucial in leveraging the power of technologies to connect people in agriculture blockchain, which is about the work we are doing at Spec Farms. And uh, addressing those challenges associated with promoting gender equality can present opportunities for the improving access to the market, finance, information, and social inclusion. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Jean-Claude. And I, I think, well, A, you've covered a huge amount of ground, but actually beautifully lines us up into Ajita. Um, because what we hear, heard now from both Tash and Jean-Claude Ajita is around access to finance and what finance means, you know, at the moment, potentially prohibitive for women or just different. You've been working with rural businesses in India. So we're going to leap across continents now again. 
you've been working for more than 20 years. You spend time really, amongst other things, looking at that finance and how do you unlock the potential of women. Can you tell us a bit more about your journey and, and what you've really learned in this time, particularly around that kind of finance piece? Ajita? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. And again, it was great to hear from um, the other speakers because I think that I think it's always nice when we're all aligned and you're not having to repeat things because I think everything that's been already said is true irrespective of country, right? I think there's some critical baselines that we're all recognizing is that women are resilient, women um, take access to finance and turn it around exponentially. Uh, They have a very different sense of uh, aspiration, pride, and responsibility in terms of leveraging access to capital to be able to turn it around to help support their families and businesses. And I think this is true irrespective of what continent we're coming in from. Um, And unfortunately, uh, the barriers that were also um, discussed are equally, unfortunately, uh, similar. Um, In the context of India, just really quickly, um, you know, we have uh, 1.43 billion people in our country. Uh, We have 700,000 villages. And of that 1.43 billion, about 800 million live in rural India, uh, which of which 51% are women. So when you start looking at the numbers, it's massive for one country. And it's even worse when you start thinking about what has happened in India in the last couple of years. When we look at labor force participation and we look at the um, you know challenges that COVID had brought in, we were already pretty bad, right? We were already at only 24% in terms of labor force participation. Um, and that declined even further to around 12% due to COVID. When you look at rural India, it's not about employment per se. There's a reality in India, which I think is so fascinating. Um, and in my 20 years, I've, I've started understanding this very differently. It's not about employment opportunities for rural women. It's about the fact that women are actually working in several different ways to either generate income through small businesses, becoming micro entrepreneurs, getting like small time, part time jobs to be able to facilitate services, working with governments or creating what we call livelihoods. And also they have a massive number of hours where they're unfortunately not getting paid for the work that they do, whether it's being a small farmer, a smallholder farmer, where they're manning and doing agri labor um, in their own, um, you know, backyards, but their job is not to earn income. It's actually to provide for their family or the unpaid work, which ultimately is household care, which they take utter responsibility for. And to put this in the context, we're talking about women that are married at the age of 14. And by the time they're 25, they already have four kids and they're part of a joint family. And they're part of an ecosystem, which is always lacking in resources and lacking in in-front opportunities to get out of that level of poverty. So that's like massive learnings and journeys for me, just understanding the complexity and the dynamics of uh, what is rural India and who these women are. But in the last 20 years, because of my work in microfinance and because of my own company, Frontier Markets, the positive things that I've learned is number one, rural women are extremely powerful, resilient, multitask oriented, and actually can do a lot if you invest in their skilling, access to digital tools, and access to finance. We've seen an entire industry in India that was grown through microfinance where the entire thesis was invest in women because they're more responsible and they have an urgency to repay their loans and turn their capital around to start micro businesses. And in my time in microfinance, I myself have seen over a million women set up businesses and get access to finance and turn their families' lives around. At Frontier Markets, we took that to the next level. We started recognizing that if you can bring in digital innovation, you can bring in market-based skilling, and it can also give women jobs where they actually live versus making them travel and help them leverage their own asset, which is their social influence and their understanding and trust of rural communities, you can create incredible job opportunities. So we have 35,000 women today that are on a digital platform that have helped over a million families get access to all kinds of services in healthcare, in digital solutions, in agri, in finance, and healthcare. The key learning was that the second women were earning income, they were able to do three things. One, invest back into their families and actually invest in behavior change, positive outcomes. So private education for their girls, stopping child marriages, investing in quality healthcare. Second, they were also able to unlock the potential of capital by getting them access to money and setting up a business. 
they were able to become profitable a lot faster, which unlocked their opportunity to bring in debt financing and other solutions. And third, I think for me, most powerful is that these women weren't just taking care of themselves. They actually started bringing in tools and solutions through data to help us understand unlocking opportunities for millions of other women, being instrumental in getting them access to agri-financial services, savings products, insurances, et cetera. So what we've been able to see in a very strategic level is that the learnings from India is that invest in women's skilling, digital access, market-based opportunities, then use data differently to understand the power of who they are. And if you bring them capital or you unlock their potential to get capital, they can turn it around 10 times, creating both impact as well as business and market opportunities. Thanks. Ajeta, thank you very much. And for everybody listening, clearly we are being bombarded with brilliant stats, ideas, suggestions. Uh, for everybody, please do um, get in touch with us because we will do an insights paper off the back of this and make sure it's all summarised for you. So we really want to make sure that you guys uh, get access to this. If you're in the Zoom meeting and event, I can see the chat is going absolutely furiously. We will get our best to get some questions uh, in a bit. Um, and likewise, if you are on the Twitter live, um, do keep your uh, thoughts coming in. Do get tweeting as well. We will take your questions from the t from Twitter. Uh, so please do uh, get tweeting. Do get sharing your questions in the chat and do keep connecting. Love it. Next, I'm going to turn to Danielle. Danielle, clearly we've heard quite a lot of synergies between Ajita, uh, Jean-Claude and Tash. In fact, I feel like they've already started sharing platform ideas and suggestions. But I wanted to bring in your, your perspective because I, having had a bit of a conversation with you before uh, this this uh, or as a part of the setup for this conversation today I, I get the impression that, that perhaps we're doing it all wrong if we're going to get anywhere near gender um, equity we might just be approaching this all wrong so Danielle I wonder whether you could tell us a bit about your work and what has brought you uh, to quite frank frankly working on a sort of gender equal world Danielle yes th thank you so much and I'm really honoured to be here um, I, I don't think I, I, the last thing I'll say is everyone's getting it wrong. I think just hearing from the three people before me, uh, they've been doing some fantastic work. So I think there's a lot of a, a lot of really good work. But you know, we just did a we just did a piece of research yesterday, which we announced, and, and actually, to be honest, it made it made me really sad um, because uh, it was basically looking at the language that still pervades workplaces that gets in the way of gender equity, and they were all the same things that I would have heard nine years ago. So. I really came out off the back of that research, actually feeling very down. And, and listen, I'm not the one that um, I'm not the one that actually has to deal with, you know, exclusion. You know, I, I am. If you type the word privilege into Google Images, you get someone like me. Uh, I have privileges at every single level. Um, but it's taken me, I think, the last 10 years to really understand that privilege. And, and I think in terms of how we're tackling it differently, I think, and why why is it not moving as quickly as it needs to be? I think I'm just going to tell you a story that Deborah Ray Burns told me two years ago when she interviewed me on International Women's Day. And she said there are three fish in a, in a goldfish bowl, um, a female fish and two male fish. And, and the female fish goes up to the, the male fish and says, how's the water today, chaps? And the male fish say, what water? And... What we see time and time again, I've been in, I've been an inclusion diversity speci uh, specialist for six years now. Uh, what we see time and time again is the men just don't see the issue. And when I say the men, I, I have to be very careful, to be honest. Uh, it's not all men. It is the men who have spent most of their career in the out group, in the in group. So the men who have had it easy, have very little barriers. I, I will count myself in as one of those people. In fact, Token Man and the name Token Man comes from a dinner I organised 11 years ago where I organised a dinner with 12 women. And when I walked into the room with 12 women, it wasn't as if that was a surprise because I'd organised it. But what was a surprise is the minute I walked into the room, I completely lost my confidence. And for my friends that know me very well, they would say that's impossible. But it was as if this invisible hand came down and pulled my confidence away. And then when I sat down for dinner, the conversations happening around me just seemed to push me further and further out. And then I got up to introduce the dinner and talk about why we were there. And my co-host cut me off, even to the extent that two years later, I met some of those women. They didn't even know what the dinner was for. Um, 
these are all things that I'd heard women tell me that experience within senior leadership. And it's not like I, it's not like I didn't believe them. I just didn't understand the extent of of what it's like to be in the out group. Secondly, I also started to realise that while I I always felt that I hadn't contributed to any kind of exclusion, um, I realised that when on a Tuesday morning when I went into the management meeting, there were ten men and two women uh, in the senior leadership team. When I spoke to Pete about football, I was pushing those two women out out even further simply because they weren't interested in football. And so one, I started to realise that my behaviours were impacting and were uh, were impacting others and were exclusionary. But just as importantly, I started to realise how broken the system was. And in any system, if you're not trying to change it, you are contributing to it. So really what I've spent the last 10 years doing is finding different ways to engage men. Um, partly take men was so that was a safe space uh, to allow men to talk about gender equity so we could inspire them to become agents of change in the workplace. Uh, and when I say agents of change, that's actually um, creating workplaces that are more inclusive, diverse and equitable for everyone. So that is women and other marginalised groups. Um, because at the moment, I, certainly 10 years ago, what, I think I think as a man, not only was I not even being invited in those spaces uh, when it comes to gender equity, but often I wasn't welcome. And no minority in history has ever affected change without the support of the majority. So we we special we focus all our all of our efforts in engaging men, uh, getting more men. Uh, and yesterday again, you know, we talk about yes, there has been some change in the last ten years, but you know, I can't tell you how many people I spoke to did International Women's Day events where ten percent of the audience were men. That's not going to create change. Um, we have, we have to get more men into the conversation and, and actually creating that change together. Thank you very much. Well, you are very welcome here and it's what it's all about. And thank you very much to everybody for joining us today as well, because as you say, without the <laughs> can't affect change unless we've got the majority engaged. So um, I definitely take that away with me. Uh, Danielle, thank you. We're now going to look at sort of those four key areas in a little bit more detail in terms of what we can do about them and um, what potentially we could um, enact if we really engaged. So we're going to have a sort of deep dive into parenting. Or we're going to try to in half now. Parenting, men, agriculture, and technology. <laughs> huge, huge. I'm also very aware of all the chat and the conversations coming in. Please do keep your comments coming in, and we will do our best to get to them. Ajeda, I wanted to turn to you first. Um, in terms of what happens if you actually really empower women? What does it look like if we genuinely can empower women? And I, I'm going to wrap in, if it's OK with you, um, the sort of follow up question to that, which is what's your advice to others who are trying to do this? Um, and I was wondering whether if we can try and keep our responses next, the next lot of responses to about sort of three minutes each. Hopefully we'll rapid fire through it. So, Ajeta, what does the what does the success look like here, and and how what would be your advice to others who are trying to get there? Yeah, um, great, great question. So, first of all, I just want to take a moment and say that um, I really caution all of us when we call it empowering women, because uh, it sounds like they are not powerful. And so I think my biggest learning is it's not about us empowering women; it's about us elevating the potential of the power that they already claim and the space that they already have. So just to kind of put that on record, because I do think it's very important to differentiate. Now, what does power look like when women, when women have access to the power that they are able to leverage and harness based on how they're designed to work and what they can do? It's exponential. And I can give you a, a simple example from our own experience. Um, you know, we, um, one of our women entrepreneurs um, she grew up in a very small town in, uh, in a state of India called Uttar Pradesh, where she essentially was married at the age of 14, um, moved into her, uh, you know, new in-laws place, uh, where, you know, within the second year she had a child and you can imagine that she's like set, went from being like literally a child that was like going to school to suddenly now being a mom and taking the responsibilities of managing the field and also managing household work. And for like the next like six, seven years, she's basically being told that she's not good at anything because she keeps messing up 
because no one taught her how to do these things. And then eventually she ends up joining, you know, a, 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 a women's network or a collective where she's getting access to an opportunity to get access to finance, uh, to get a bank account, to be able to also get an ID. And she's being given skills to start er- like earning small time income for like in, in like a job, temporary job perspective. She suddenly gets the flavor of what it's like to be a community leader. She starts connecting with her own fellow neighbors. She starts building an image of, uh, of, of, of her own identity because of the income that she gets access to. She's able to start saving for her children. She's able to start making decisions about what purchases she wants to have in her own space. And then all of a sudden, when she gets access to an opportunity like working with us, tech, getting her relationships and actually being able to leverage that, all of a sudden she's earning 10 times more income. She gets, um, and she literally says, I now can make decisions for my family. I can help my daughter not get married at 14, but actually send her to college. I want to be able to contribute to um, a healthcare program for my own family. And now she also then helped a hundred other women get access to finance and business opportunities and help them actually go through the same transition. So one woman was able to actually impact a hundred, but also the future of the generation of her children and actually was able to then create decisions and agencies for herself. These are the kind of examples that we believe are exponentially strong and they happen in a really incredible sort of way to really make this thing happen at a larger level uh, of scale. And then ultimately, I would say that, you know, what's also critical is that we open the doors. So ultimately, how are we as businesses helping see women with that lens, give them that voice, help them co-create, and actually help them then take that to that next level of transition? But once they're in a certain level where they have access to income, they have uh, an image or an understanding, and they have opinions to create drive change, how are we opening doors further to enable them, getting them access to market linkages, helping them get mentorship, helping them to get to be seen and have different platforms to make that happen in an exponential way? Thanks. Oh, thank you very much. That's really helpful. Um, I wanted to bring you in next, Jean-Claude. Clearly, we've talked quite a lot in terms of kind of rural businesses, but zooming down into um, agricultural supply chains, what what could the future look like if we genuinely have whether moving away from women empowerment, but like the equality going on here through that agricultural transformation you described, but also how can businesses, bigger businesses, better include female-led um, uh, agricultural businesses into their supply chains? Like, do bigger businesses and their supply chains need to change? What would be your advice to them? Jean-Claude? Okay, yeah, thank you so much uh, uh, for the first question. Uh, I can say that uh, the first question is about what could the future look like if the women were really and truly equal agriculture value chain. Uh, I, I can say that by improving agricultural productivity, because when women have equal access to the resource such as land, credit, and education, they are more likely to invest in their farms, leading to the increased agricultural productivity. For example, in my country, for the women who have received agricultural training, access to finance, has been able to increase the crop yield and uh, diversify their crops, which have improved their livelihood and contributed to the country for the securities. The second one is about increasing the income for the women. I believe that the equal participation of the women in agricultural chain can result in increased income for the women farmers, which can help to reduce the poverty and improve the economic status of the women and their families. For instance, through the implementation of initiatives, for example, gender-sensitive extension services and access to the market, women in Rwanda have been able to increase their income and improve their standard of living. Uh, the third one is about gender, uh, greater gender equalities, uh, because when the women have equal access to the resources, the men, they are more likely to participate in the decision-making process and they have greater say in their own lives. For example, uh, gender equalities within agricultural chain can help to break down gender stereotype and power women. Uh, in my country, the Rwandan government has launched a program to encourage women to participate in decision-making bodies, especially in the government, and it has resulted in more women occupying leadership position with agriculture sectors and bringing the impact in their communities. Um, 
regarding how agriculture blockchain can support human rate business, uh, I think that the first one is about providing access to the finance because agriculture blockchain can help women red business by providing them with access to the finance through uh, the loans, grants, or other financial instruments, which can allow them to invest in their business and expand their operation. The, the second is about uh, building networking partnership. Agricultural chain uh, can help women red businesses to build strong in partnership with other businesses, especially the large business in the organization in chain, starting from production up to consumption. And this can help them to get access to the new market, gain new customers, and improve their business practice. The third one is about improving the skills and knowledge. Uh, I think that agricultural chain can provide trainings and technical assistance to the women red business, which can help them to get the skills and knowledge they need to succeed, to succeed in their businesses. Uh, for example, it's about the trainings, business management, and agriculture practice. The last one is about uh, creating supportive policies and the regulation. Yeah, we are agricultural chain can support women red business by advocating for the policies and the regulation that promote the interests and address the specific challenges the women face. This includes the policies related to the gender-based violence. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um I mean, A, you cover so much there, Jean-Claude. For anybody who's just joining us, um, we are deep diving into really how do you unlock the potential of women, but also how do you really scale up and or accelerate that um, gender um, equity? We just looked at business engagement. Jean-Claude just talked about some of the policies that need to change and just really putting women in the right places to be able to do that. Um, we've also been looking at different financial tools skilling up etc we're now going to have a little bit of a look at the personal element uh, for anybody online uh, whether you're on the zoom or indeed on the twitter don't worry we're going to do our best to get to some questions a bit so do get your questions in we love hearing from you to jean-claude's mentioned just now about the gender-based violence we've got a whole nother session session in a bit on that specific topic so do stay with us if you're on the twitter and you want to get onto the zoom please do uh jump into and send us a little um tweet and we'll send you the uh, Zoom link so that you can get registered and get into uh, the wider gender summit that is happening around business fights poverty. But we're now going to zoom into some of the kind of more personal pieces, like how do you and me, quite frankly, navigate that challenge of getting women into the workplace or into, quite frankly, to the, to the point that was made earlier on that um, Ajeta was making, into paid work, into work that's not just um, filling the gaps or kind of creating their own businesses out of necessity. How do we help women become leaders and really empower that? And Tash, I wanted to turn to you first. In our warm-up chat before this conversation, we started talking about what it is to be a mum in this and, and quite frankly, what it is just to be able to step up and not feel guilty about potentially balancing both work and um, being a parent. And I was wondering whether you could share a bit about your own experience at this point but also if you wouldn't mind just tell us a bit about in your mind how might we navigate that that guilt oh I feel guilty anyway that guilt about wanting to have both business and a career and also uh, your family like, what's your kind of advice to others can I turn to you Tash thanks Katie you know I think we, we're starting to enter the territory of, of cultural norms um, and the way we were raised. And I grew up in a, a family, uh, dad worked, my mom didn't work. Uh, I've had both my parents, a very privileged upbringing. And, um, you know, I divorced when my kids were um, seven and five. And I remember saying to, uh, and I didn't, I had done an MBA and I, I remember talking to my girls and I wanted to explain to them that I was going to be taking on quite an intense job. And I, I tried to explain to them what I would be doing, that it would be helping people, that I was getting into work where I was getting big companies to engage with communities and enable people to build their incomes and to develop their communities. It was, you know, the whole inclusive business space. 
and that we needed to do something with our privilege. So, you know, I started out by trying to change the norm for my kids around the importance of being out in the workplace as a woman and trying to transform communities and society and using your privilege well. And I remember my five-year-old piped up very nervously and she said, you know, in her mind, this was about saving the world. And she said, mom, can you save the world (laughs) part-time and and be with us in the afternoon? Um, You know, in her little mind, she was already panicking about losing me, but her norm was that moms need to be with their kids. And if we could start to shift these norms, if I didn't feel so guilty about uh, the divorce and and putting my kids into a you know um, a, a household led by me alone. If I didn't feel so guilty about going back to work, if I had, you know, if we could couch this more around kids seeing their moms working as fulfilling their full potential, that this is not something to to drive your guilt, but to feel proud of that you know, you're entering the workplace, you're making a difference, you're fulfilling your potential, that work is a good thing. It's not a bad thing pulling you away from time with your family. But that that cultural norm has to shift for kids to grow up in homes where they see that. What is brilliant about the work from home revolution is, you know, with, with my team at MyTax, I, you know, I have about 50% of my team are women and you see them on screen and we see these little heads popping up where they're you know sitting on mom's lap um especially if it's a day they haven't gone to school they're not feeling well and they're watching mom interact uh and and be this different person that's engaging in a completely different way than they see her in a caregiving role at home and and, and i so i think this work from home is going to help us change the norms of how kids see us interacting in the workplace and this this value that we're adding. So I hope that 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 accelerates and changes things. But you know, my personal experience was incredible guilt when I took on the CEO role. Um, I know there was no balance. I know that I made an active choice to throw myself heart and soul into working to create opportunities for people with so much less privilege than I had to be able to get into the workplace. Because we saw when we broke women into the workplace, we saw what a transformative impact that had on their lives. And it was so important to me to be able to do this work well. The stakes were high um, and I, you know, failure was just not an option. And I absolutely did spend more time at work than with my family. And till today that guilt haunts me, you know, my girls were adolescents and needed, um, needed my time. There is very difficult to create this mythical work-life balance. And so the, the only way I do see us getting out of this, if we change the norms, that guilt isn't a factor in this, that actually not fulfilling your full potential in the workplace is what we should feel guilty about. And kids should celebrate and see their moms as role models when they go out. Um, and, and it's only by flipping this on its head that I think we're going to be able to extricate ourselves from this, this guilt that, uh, that follows us. Thank you so much. And, and nowadays, it's parent, you know, it's parent guilt as well as men and women both ways. Certainly, uh, that's ex- my experience anyway. I totally thank you so much for sharing so openly and honestly with us. Anybody listening, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. What's your own hack? What's your parenting or like just general care hack? It might not be that you're caring for a parent, just generally trying to balance looking after your friends or family. I'd love to hear your thoughts um, on this because only by sharing, I I think we'll get anywhere near. And And I think the other one is just to go easy on those who don't necessarily fulfill your career potential don't necessarily you know go full-hearted on one thing or the other it's okay just to be you so um I would love your thoughts Danielle whilst we're sort of sticking with the personal piece clearly you brought in earlier around how do we make sure that men are absolutely front and center and part of creating equality everybody's part of this why in your mind or indeed, sorry, how do we make sure that men are part of the solution? Do we need to 
change the conversation? Do we need to not have International Women's Day? Is that the wrong conversation to be having? Or is it something else? I really love your thoughts on like, how do we make sure that men are included? And what could somebody who's potentially listening to this do to encourage their business or an organisation that they're part of to, to also kind of get it better, I think? Danielle? Yeah, thank you. And, and thank, I just want to say thanks to Tashmir for sharing her story, because I, I think it's worth just stating I mean, the way we you talk about, are we getting it wrong? I mean, I think we can get it better. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say getting it wrong. But at the moment, we seem to have created what I call a double tax. So we've created an environment in which that, that we've got workplaces that aren't inclusive. Let's be really clear. And then we're asking the people who are excluded to solve the issue. So those people who do come from historical, historically marginalised groups are expected to set up the ARGs. They're expected to create the events. They're expected to organise International Women's Day. Uh, I actually had a client I spoke to who uh, six months ago, they, were, they, had, they had two men who had stepped onto their committee and they just made the comment which said, wouldn't it be nice if the men organised the International Women's Day uh, event this year? And the men just laughed. And said, well, we wouldn't do that. You're so good at doing it. And it, it amazes me that even when I'm doing International Men's Day, I do a lot of work around International Men's Day, is it's usually women that are calling me up to arrange it. So I do think we have to change the narrative. Uh, and that, that that partly that narrative is, I, I, do, I wrote a post uh, on Friday when we, when we launched our Masculine to the Workplace report. Uh, so we did a piece of research in the UK that showed 48% of the male respondents said they felt they were being forced to do get involved with IND when it wasn't relevant to them. That's the key issue for me. Uh, inclusion has to be for everyone. Uh, we have to start uh, recognising that actually the patriarchy has done damage to almost everyone. Uh, you know, we have a certainly in the UK, but also I think globally, we have a huge issues around male suicide, uh, around uh, men just finding it very hard. I think Bell Hooks talks it beautiful, beautifully in her book, The World's Change, that the patriarchy has disconnected men from their feelings. And I do a lot of work in that space and I see it and I see the negative impact it has uh, on those men. So I think the first way of actually getting men to understand inclusion for everyone is by also understanding that men have um, do um, are damaged by the current system. So we 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 have an event every year called Masculine to the Workplace, and it is the only event that is dominated uh, has a majority of what I'd call the in group in the workplace. And you know we 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 talk about some of the issues that men are facing, but ultimately what we are trying to do is get men engaged so they can then start helping to change the culture so i think for me it's about understanding what is your engaging men's strategy um i mean if you're if you have an inclusion diversity strategy at work and you don't an acute element of that is not an engaging men's strategy then i think your strategy is fundamentally flawed because men have to be part of the solution and uh, i i'm hoping next year you know most of my clients are women I, you know, I want more men reaching out and, and, and taking that responsibility for the change. Oh, I've got literally the hairs on my back of my neck kind of properly tingling around these really, really just super practical and useful um, ideas and suggestions. So a massive thank you to everybody for sharing so generously. Um, in the chat, I'm saying, please, can we have a write up and links to all of these amazing stats? They're coming your way, guys. We are trying our best bring together all of those resources for you. What we'll also do, if you haven't already, sign up to the Gender Summit, the Business Fights Poverty Gender Summit. Make sure you're registered and we'll put links into Twitter if you're there. Hopefully, if you're on the Zoom, you've already come through that channel. And we'll make sure you get an insights paper and we'll bring all those fantastic, useful stats um, all together. I think that 48% of men felt that International Women's Day was just not their problem and why should they be involved um it's a particularly uh, key eye-opener for me even if i'm not quite sure what to do with it um danielly thank you very much turning to the questions that we've got coming in uh, there was a question earlier on um on the lines that uh, shared a little or asked a little bit about policy so um jean claude you asked or you flagged up that policies better policy making with women at the heart was absolutely essential and jade that i happen to know that you've got some thoughts 
in terms of what are the policies that potentially have worked quite well to encourage um, and enable that kind of gender equal playing field? Ajeta? Yeah, sure. And, you know, I'll even tackle just the uh, question around uh, civil society and women's rights as well, um, because I do think that they're kind of connected in terms of what's happening in India. So um, um, in India, uh, in the last uh, couple of years, there's been um, really an incredible convergence that has come together with um, government policy uh, uh, initiatives and then the work that's actually happening on the ground. So I'll just give a couple of really quick examples. Um, the Indian government, even just like in this last one year, just announced their budgets. And when they were announcing their budgets, there was an entire area of line items around gender inclusivity and gender economic uh, economic opportunities, which was around one, unlocking 2% of their social welfare budgets to increase, to target it more towards women and mothers. A second was an entire unlocking of budgets to actually help promote uh, more entrepreneurial business and working capital opportunities for rural women, very specifically, in really large numbers. And then there was a third that was really about what they're calling the digital first economy move, which their understanding is very much about digital transformation when it comes to rural women in India. The context for everyone to know um, that's joined in is that the Indian government has actually, in the last 40 years, already spent billions of dollars around something called the National Rural Livelihood Mission, which was the effort to actually create women collectives in the country. Today, 100 million women are accessing bank accounts, are part of these women collectives, but they've not been able to necessarily earn income opportunities or get livelihoods that are relevant. And this has been the government's effort on a policy initiative to start driving this. The final policy is also around what we're calling the women's entrepreneurship policy, which is the first of its kind that's actually coming through state by state level, which is around, again, harnessing, looking at more micro entrepreneurs, medium sized organizations and helping look at that with a gender lens, which is quite exciting. Um, and these are just small examples about where, you know, governments are coming in. Now, how is that happening? To be very fair, it's not just the government driving this on their own. And with all due respect, Daniel, it's definitely not men that are driving this on their own either. There's been an entire slew of an incredible feminist movement that has come in from grassroots, from civil societies, from social entrepreneurs that are frankly women-led, that are finally pushing more aggressively to say that they wanna be a part of a conversation because we have to remember one thing, that majority of the countries that we're working in, there's always been a stronger voice of men. There's been stronger opportunities for men there's been stronger leadership designed with men, by men, for women. And we need to understand that civil societies and organizations are coming together to collectively now start guiding on policy, using data and using a different perspective, which is a feminist lens around where women need to actually come in to bridge that divide. Because stats tell you right now, if we continue the way that we are, there's going to be 132 years until we actually get that equality plane together. I'm not going to live that long. Most of us aren't. So ultimately, we're trying to do certain elements of linking civil society, markets, data, and policy to try to drive this at a much faster pace. We ourselves have announced an incredible gender policy working in tandem with the government to unlock the potential of 100 million women. And I am saying women because ultimately that's what's going to bridge that divide and actually help us create opportunities faster. Go ahead, Jeta. Oh my gosh, oh, exciting work. Uh, I think you might be quite busy though. <laughs> that is massive. Um, we've got another question that's coming in as well around um, how do um, local organisations, women's rights and civil society, indigenous groups, how can they be better engaged to make sure that we really create that gender equity, gender equality as well? So um, if any of my speakers would uh, like to uh, take that question, would anybody like to leap in at this point and, and share? Feel free to take yourself off mute if you would like to jump into that one or indeed the um, comment on any of the other pieces so far. Oh, we've got, oh, we've got, we've got, we've got resolute so, sort of not quite sure there. So we'll, we'll wait and see. Maybe they'll come off mute. In which case, we're into our last six minutes of this conversation today. I want to therefore turn to each of um, our panel. What is your hope for International Women's Day? And what would be your one call to action? So what is your vision for whether it's renaming it and changing it completely or not at all, or just 
what does the future look like um and what's your one call to action from today um tash i wonder whether we could turn to you first what does what does the future look like what would you like to have as your one action my my hope is that other women in the workplace, I know we're talking about involving men. I think that's an important point that men need to be be a lot more involved. But I think support from other women in your organization, women in leadership positions, um, really laying the path for other women in the organization to be able to feel confident and feel the space to grow. Um, even though their, you know, their home realities are, are, are different from from other women and men in the organisation, that is what I would love to see. I haven't experienced um, enough kindness from other women as I've worked my way into senior leadership positions. Um, I feel that women are actually sometimes quite hard on other women when we need to make tough leadership calls, we're judged differently. My personal call to action is to be as accommodating and opening up pathways for other women in my organization um, and and anywhere that I interact. And I would love to see more of that. Um, we are hard on each other. And 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 let's let's try to to turn that around. Totally. Um, so I want to add uh, Jean-Claude uh, to this conversation. I know his internet just dropped there. Jean-Claude, we're just looking at um, what's your hope for International Women's Day and what would be your one call to action? While you're having a moment thought about that, um, Ajeta, perhaps I could turn to you. What would be your one call to action and, and what's your hope for International Women's Day? Um, yeah, I think um, in terms of, uh, well, first of all, I, I couldn't agree with Tash more. I do think that, you know, women supporting women is pretty um, critical, especially at this juncture now. Um, I think that the, in, in, in the last couple of panels I've been on, there's been a larger call to action to build more women in leadership roles. So adding more women into boards, having more women get into executive level decision making, uh, looking at more like gender lens investing when we're thinking about capital coming in. I feel like we've talked about this a lot, but at least for the call to action now would be creating efforts to make that happen and then linking it back to Tasha's point. If that does happen, if women are in position of power, how are they? How are we pushing on really a gender report card, which is not annually, but like daily, weekly, monthly on how we're actually pushing that forward to open doors for more women? Thank you. Right, everybody, I've got to take action. Jean-Claude, what about yourself? What does what does International Women's Day, what's your hope for that? And where do you, what would you, your call to action be to anybody listening to this conversation today? Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, my call to action regarding this International Women's Day is, uh, is about promoting gender equality. Yeah, uh, which is um, about promoting gender equality in agriculture value chain because it's where I spend much of my time. And I believe that um, by promoting gender equality, it's about uh, including, ensuring that women are included in all aspects of the value chain, uh, including decision-making, the ownership and control. This uh, should be one of the opportunities for the women to show that they are capable and to show that they can do whatever they can to develop and increase agriculture to the ways of improving the development of the country. Thank you. Oh, beautiful. Thank you very much. So that absolutely decision-making, ownership, control, taking it forwards. Right, we're into our last two minutes. Danielle, what does what's your hope for International Women's Day and what would be your call to action to those who are listening today? I think I think I hope International Women's Day. So one, it's really important to use it as an opportunity to celebrate women. Uh, there's a really nice post I saw where someone talked about just the first time, and it's sad because it's the first time in a career, but a man really gave her the feedback and said, how can we help your career? And just what an impact that's had on her. So I think partly it's celebrated, but I think for me, it, it just has to act as a beacon for more men to lean into inclusion, diversity, and, and ask themselves the question, what am I doing to change the system? 
Right, everybody. So what are you doing to change the system? We are pretty well at time. A massive thank you to everybody for joining us today, for sharing your questions, for getting into the chat and going absolutely crazy, guys. Completely love it. And that rounds off this conversation. I hope you liked it. And there are heaps more from the Gender Summit on Business Fights Poverty's website. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 